Today's scripture is Esther 3, 1 through 11. After these things, King Azuarus promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seal above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and did obeisance to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? When they spoke to him after that day, and he would not listen to him, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would avail, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance to him, Haman was infuriated. But he thought it beneath him to pay, lay hands on Mordecai alone. So having been told who Mordecai's people were, Haman plotted to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, through the whole kingdom of Azuaris. For the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Azuaris, they cast pur, which means the lot, before Haman for the day and for the month, and the lot fell on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Azuaris, There is a certain people scattered and separated among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued for their destruction. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The money is given to you and the people as well, to do with them as it seems good to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Irene. Our liturgists are really happy we're in the book of Esther. So many good names for them to work their way through. <laughs> oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is great and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it and the dry land which his hands have formed. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's Psalm 95. It's an invitation to worship. An invitation to remember the goodness, the awesomeness, the holiness of God. It's an invitation to remember that we are God's people. And because we are, we're invited to bow down to worship. We're invited to kneel before God. 
Have you done that lately? Have you had a powerful moment of worship lately? Have you had a moment to just sit in awe and wonder at the presence and the power of God? Some years ago, I had a chance to visit Duke University. I wish I could tell you I was there because I had tickets to a Blue Devils basketball game. That was not why. I went to go visit the seminary, which was made even more fun for me because I have a good friend from college who works at Duke, and at the time she was on the staff of Duke Chapel. I wonder, have you ever seen Duke Chapel? I brought a couple pictures. Did we get those loaded up, guys? There's Duke Chapel, and I have an interior picture as well. It is an amazing place. Now, you've maybe been to a church like this if you've ever traveled to Europe or you've been to the National Cathedral in D.C. or or several churches in New York or similar. They are amazing buildings. And Megan took me on a complete tour, including up to the top of that bell tower, which was so awesome. But even better than that was the fact that I was on campus on Thursday night, which was the night for Vespers. So a little before 7 o'clock, I walked into the sanctuary. It was pretty dark, full of candles. And even though the stained glass wasn't shining up at the top, I could still feel that huge expanse of the room, the ceiling high above me, the stonework just still and quiet. And at Vespers, everybody sits behind the altar in the choir because there are so few people, 50 people maybe maximum at that service, and the choir faces each other, pews on both sides. So we're sitting there on our high-backed wooden pews, and then the Vesper choir got up to sing, And they were as professional as you would expect from a campus choir on a place like Duke, full of future performers and music educators, and they sang a cappella, and they sang in Latin, and it it took my breath away. And then my friend Megan got up, and she read scripture, and she offered prayers, and, and when she finished praying, she invited, just like we do here every week, she invited us to pray the Lord's Prayer. My head was down. The room was dark and still. But suddenly my ears filled up with the sounds of all these people whispering the same words, our Father, who art in heaven. And our voices bounced from one stone surface to the other, crisscrossing each other, piling up on top of one another, voices coming at me from every side. It began to sound like the building itself was praying, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. It was angelic. It was transcendent. I was so overwhelmed at the power and the beauty and the majesty of God in that moment. I was sitting down, but inside I was kneeling in reverence before God. The Duke Chapel is a really special place. But we don't have to be in a building like that to have a powerful and humbling moment of worship, do we? We don't really even have to be inside. I remember when I was in youth group, it's been a while, But I remember what it felt like to sit on the stones of this little place at Camp Horizon, which is a United Methodist camp down in south-central Kansas, a place called Reflection Point. We would always go there at the end of youth group retreats, and it was often hot, Kansas in the middle of the summer. We were sitting on rocks. There were flies and mosquitoes. We didn't have hymnals. We didn't have a sound system. We didn't have screens, but it didn't matter. All we had was a little songbook and our youth pastor and her guitar. And we would sit on those stones at a reflection point and look up at the cross that sits on the edge of the cliff. And beyond, we could see the Arkansas River Valley 
and we sang, and we shared our thoughts on Scripture, and we asked God to make us disciples. And it was beautiful, and it was holy, and it helped me to sit there humbly before God to bow down to worship. That's why we're here, right here, right now, right? To worship, to exalt, to show reverence, to humble ourselves before the one who is greater than us. Hopefully when we gather together on Sundays, we're doing what the psalmist proclaimed, let us bow down and worship, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And it's no small thing that we come here to do that. No small thing to take a moment to be reminded of our place in the world, which is as God's people, to remember that God is God and we are not. You know, so much of our days are are focused on taking care of ourselves, feeding ourselves, caring for our appearance and our clothing and making money and managing the money and spending the money and everything that we have to do for ourselves to get through the day. And then we come here to worship And we remember, we didn't make ourselves. We didn't give ourselves birth. We didn't create the miracle of our own life. We have a creator who made us and this amazing and beautiful world in which we live. And God holds that world and holds us right there in the divine hands. From the depth of the ocean to the tallest mountains. And when we remember that, when we really get in touch of that, why would we want to do anything but what the psalmist suggests to kneel? to bow down before the magnificence of God. The preacher Barbara Brown Taylor tells a really awesome story that was actually first told by Rabbi Kushner about what it means to worship, what it means to be in touch with the power and the holiness of God. It comes from the time when the temple was still standing in Jerusalem, and Kushner says that on the Day of Atonement, which is the holiest day in the whole Jewish calendar, It was the job of the high priest to do what no one else ever did, which was to go into a place that no one else ever went. He went on that day into the Holy of Holies, the place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And on that day, he did what no one else ever did, spoke a word no one else ever spoke, and that was he spoke the sacred name of God, standing there in the Holy of Holies. And according to Kushner, before the high priest went in, the other priests would tie a rope around his leg. That way, if by going into that most sacred place, closest to the heart of God and speaking the sacred name of God, if by doing that, the priest would be struck dead by the presence of God, by the power and the awesomeness of God, then the other priest could pull his body out of the Holy of Holies without having to expose themselves to the same fate. Now, that's a sense of reverence. That's a recognition that God is more powerful than we are, that we're dependent on God for our very lives. That high priest, he had a lot of power and prestige in his world, but at that moment, that rope around his leg, that was a clear reminder that there was someone in the world much more powerful than he. Now, last week, we started our dive into the book of Esther. You didn't think I forgot about Esther, did I? I didn't. We're getting there. Last week, we heard about Queen Vashti and her refusal to dance before the king and his drunken officials, and that resulted in her being dethroned. And what happens next in chapter 2 of the story, a part that we're not going to read in worship, is the king takes on a massive search for a new queen. He calls up all the most beautiful young women in all of his kingdom to try out for the job, and guess who wins the job? Guess. 
Esther, that's right, it's Esther. Esther wins. We also learn in that chapter that Esther was an orphan. Both her parents had died, and she was raised by an uncle named Mordecai. Now, Mordecai's grandfather, two generations before, had been brought from Jerusalem to Persia when Jerusalem was sacked by King Nebuchadnezzar, 597 BCE. So Mordecai and Esther, they were part of this Babylonian exile, and they were two of just many Jewish people who were living there in the kingdom of King Ahasuerus. When Esther was taken with the other virgins to try out for the position of queen, Mordecai told her to not reveal the fact that she was Jewish. So Esther didn't. She kept her identity a secret. Now, the other main character in the story is someone that we finally meet when we get to chapter 3, an official of the king named Haman. And the story, it doesn't tell us very much about Haman, about who he was, or how he got to be in the king's good graces, but there he is. As soon as we meet him, he's being promoted to the highest official in all of the kingdom. He has tremendous power and favor of the king. He has so much power, Haman does, that he requests the king say that everybody has to bow down to him. And everybody does, except for Mordecai. Why did Mordecai refuse to bow to Haman? Oddly, the story doesn't really explain it. Just like it didn't really fill in the details of Vashti's refusal when the king had summoned her, we were left to figure it out for ourselves, to figure out why Mordecai would not bow down to Haman. Now, a lot of commentators seem to think that this is really just a big ethnic dispute a conflict born of centuries of hatred between groups of people. See, Haman is an Agagite, which would be a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. Right? Makes sense, of course. You're like, oh, sure, we get it now, Amy. No. (laughs) Truthfully, if I were given a multiple-choice quiz about who the Amalekites are, I would probably get it wrong. So if you're not quite with us yet, don't sweat it. I'm going to explain it. In short, the Amalekites are big enemies of the Jewish people. We can read in Exodus that they attacked the Israelites when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and Moses had to send Joshua to fight them off. Maybe you remember the story. When Moses had his hands up, the Israelites were winning. And when he got tired and put his hands down, the Amalekites were winning. And then he put his hands back up. And the, remember, wait, wait, it's in Exodus. You can go find it if you want. Then later on in 1 Samuel, we see King Saul also fighting the Amalekites at God's command. So we can think of Jews and Amalekites as sworn enemies. They've been often fighting over territory. They have this long list of past abuses and grievances against each other. So back to the story for today. Haman is an Amalekite. Mordecai is a Jew. Mordecai, by order of the king, is supposed to kneel before Haman, and he refuses. And Haman's response? Haman says, I think I'll get permission from the king to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. Doesn't that sound crazy? One guy fails to kneel, and the other guy decides, I think I'll commit genocide. Sounds crazy until we take a little spin back through human history and realize that genocide has in fact been carried out for the smallest initial reasons, uh, things that seem completely illogical. You know, hatred between ethnic groups, it doesn't have logic. There's no need for logic. It's based on anger and fear and power and control. 
we, I mean humans, we repeatedly invent reasons to hate one another. And then we bend that hatred into something that sounds reasonable and factual and true. We say, well, they're all crooks. They can't be trusted. Or they're lazy. Or they're dirty. Or they're just stupid. Or they don't know what's best for themselves. Or they're irresponsible. Or they can't make strong families. Or they just don't want to achieve. If they did, they would do better. That's the kind of thing that every racist or tribal bigot has ever said to justify their hatred and their abuse. It doesn't matter if it's Haman plotting against Jews in Persia, or Nazis plotting against Jews in Germany, or Hutus plotting against Tutsi in Rwanda, or Klansmen plotting against black people in America. The excuses used to dehumanize and dismiss are all the same. So maybe the whole thing between Haman and Mordecai, maybe it can be boiled down to an ethnic hatred. Haman certainly wanted an ethnic cleansing, and we're going to see how that turns out for him in the next few weeks. But I'm not sure that that's actually Mordecai's objection. I'm not sure he's refusing to kneel just because Haman is an Amalekite. I think there's another possibility about why Haman would not kneel, or Mordecai would not kneel before Haman. Other ancient commentators on the Hebrew Bible, back from the earliest rabbis, they suggest that Haman didn't want to, uh, that it was because Haman wanted to be treated like he was some kind of divine or semi-divine beating, or maybe that he had an idol pinned to his chest. And so if Mordecai knelt, he would be worshiping something other than God. Worshiping someone in something other than God. That is a big no-no in the Bible. And think about what's the first commandment of those ten commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain. What's the first one? The most important one. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. God says, I'm number one. I'm the one you worship. That's it. No one else. Nothing else should take your place in my heart. It, take my place in your heart and life. And then Jesus, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is about the same as worshiping God with all you've got. It's pretty hard to do that if you're also worshiping some other person or some other thing. So I want to suggest that Mordecai refused to kneel, to bow down to someone other than God, his maker, because it felt to him like a violation of that first commandment. And that was a line he wasn't willing to cross. Haman more than full of himself, was ready to use that as an excuse to wreak havoc on the Jewish people in the kingdom, which proves, of course, that he didn't even deserve the respect he was trying to get from people. Now, earlier I, I shared with you a few moments when I have knelt before God in worship, when I have felt the power and the majesty of God. So this week, remembering the witness of Mordecai, I, I want to invite you to remember your own moments of powerful worship. Moments when you felt so clearly that God is God, that God has made you, and your whole being responded with reverence and with awe. As you remember those moments from the past, I want to invite you to worship God again this week, and not just here on Sunday morning, but take another moment in your week in some time to have that moment of worship. You, you might actually kneel, like physically get on the ground before God to pray. 
especially if that's not something you normally do, it can be a very powerful thing to take time to kneel before God. Now, of course, only do it if you can get back up again, okay? Be careful. But put your body in a position to guide your heart into reverence and worship. Or you might sit down and take a moment of quiet to just reflect on all the characteristics of God. You could write out a list, kind of imitating the psalmist, uh, Psalm 95. Write down all the things that God is, all the things that God has done, all the attributes that God has, and they say thank you to God for being God. Whatever you can do to put yourself in that place of reverence and awe of worship, I think you'll be blessed and God will be glorified. Thanks be to God. Amen.